I will keep this short and sweet. I hear a lot of stories about you, about what you're enjoying, what you're finding helpful on this podcast, and I love it, what the ministry of the Living Church means to you. So if you appreciate this podcast, if you read the magazine, if you browse our blog, if you benefit from the community and fellowship of our events, remember that TLC is also a 501c3. So you know what's coming. Would you add us to your giving budget this year? Go to livingchurch.org forward slash donate 2022 or click the link in the show notes. Thanks for your generosity. Enjoy the show. I'm not saying that remembering is the problem. It's what we choose to forget in nostalgia. That's the issue. I have to undergo things in time to get to a place to receive new gifts from God. I think probably what I'm grappling with the most is just how humbling it is and how hard it is to be human sometimes. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today is a special day on the liturgical calendar. I bet you did not know about this day. This is what the fathers and mothers of the church knew as the first podcast of Advent. Yes, a very special day on the calendar. Welcome to Advent. Welcome to this wonderful time of waiting. And we've got a treat for you, almost as sweet as those baked goodies you're wondering whether or not to fast from because this is technically a penitential season. We welcome author and philosopher James K.A. Smith who has written such books as Imagining the Kingdom and You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit, and most recently, How to Inhabit Time. We've got a cozy Advent chat with him on his new book, How to Inhabit Time, from his home in Grand Rapids. How do we live in time? How do we resist? And how are Christians some of the worst at resisting living in time, in the time we are now? How does time make us vulnerable? How does waiting make us vulnerable, but also give us a sobering kind of power? And what does it mean that time is one of the conditions in which God becomes Emmanuel to us? It will be no surprise to you, given what I've just said, that James K.A. Smith is a professor of philosophy at Calvin University. Over the years, he has become an engaged public intellectual and cultural critic an award-winning author, and a widely traveled speaker building bridges between the academy, society, and the church. He is the author of a number of widely known books. His writing has also appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and USA Today, as well as in influential literary and religious magazines. He serves also as editor-in-chief of Image, a quarterly journal at the intersections of art, faith, and mystery. And I personally highly recommend this journal to you. It is one of my favorites. We talk together about keeping time and catching curveballs, about walking through houses once loved, about the charms and dangers of longing for the past, time as an adventure, and the radical freedom and trust the incarnation invites us into. Lord of the Rings comes in, yes, again, you know me, as well as the Left Behind series, so you don't know me as well as you thought. We also talk about Wes Anderson very briefly and lots of German philosophers. We had a lovely time. So cuddle up with a warm, frothy cup of whatever penitential holiday drink you feel like. And if you're in the car, make sure you got a lid securely on it. Sometimes Starbucks doesn't get the lid on all the way. And we hope you enjoy the conversation. I just want to first say that I'm loving the wallpaper behind oh, you. Oh, thank you. This is there's a bit of a story here. So uh, I'm ready. We live, in an, we live in an arts and crafts house that is on Morris Avenue, and this is a William Morris wallpaper that was here before we bought the house and it's actually part of how my wife sold me on moving. That's amazing. It looks like a wallpaper either straight from the late 19th century, early 20th century or a Wes Anderson movie. It's so it's that late 19th century Victorian sort of arts and crafts heritage, but you're right. There, and then the, the, 
the nostalgia of the Wes Anderson aesthetic. Yes, combined. Well, Jamie, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for sharing this time, an hour of our mortal lives. Indeed. Yeah, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. We're here today, as people will will know, hearing the intro to this podcast, to talk about your new book, How to Inhabit Time, which is beautifully produced, by the way. Kudos on mm. whoever, you know, did yes. the art design. And, and Paula just Gibson beautiful. at Brazos creates beautiful artifacts. Oh, it is lovely. It's a lovely book to to hold in the hand as well as to read. And this book is about so many things. It's about time, obviously. It's about mortality. It's about creatureliness, about understanding that we operate in seasons as human creatures, including what you call seasons of the heart. And this book is is doing theological anthropology. It's doing some practical eschatology. Maybe that's a phrase. Mm. Sort of how to live in these times toward the end of, of our individual times as well as, as the end. But it's also devotional, which I found fascinating. You have meditations in here from Ecclesiastes. I personally found the material devotional besides the meditations and therapeutic, frankly. This book is not 500, 600 pages long. It's very brief. I read it on two plane trips. So what was the genesis of a book like this that's easy to read, but contains this kind of material? What were some of the hints in your life that this was something you wanted to write about? Yeah, th- thanks, by the way. The, the way you've just described that is really encouraging to me. I, I really appreciate it. I think if I'm very candid, I would say probably one of the impetuses, impeti, <laughs> uh, for, for the book was some of my own personal reckoning with history that happened for me in therapy and counseling. So that's why I'm encouraged mm-hmm. to hear the, if, if somebody else could experience this as a sort of therapeutic exercise, that's almost like taking it back to its origins. I, I opened the book as, as you know, sort of recounting pretty dark and difficult a very dark and difficult episode in my life. And yeah. I realized what what I was gifted with in my Christian counselor was an opportunity to reckon with my own history and and the way in which my past wasn't just what was behind me, it was what I still carried. Mm-hmm. And so that that was very much a sort of personal genesis and catalyst. I would say the other thing at a more collective level, because you probably noticed this, the book, the the book toggles back and forth a little bit because I think all of this applies to a personal individual life, but I also think it's relevant to how we think collectively and communally about us. Yeah, like the and, human species. Exactly. And and, and, and the and church the, also. The church, you know, a congregation, our institutions. And I would say the last several years of reckoning in the United States, in particular, I would say after the murder of George Floyd and the mm. way our collective reckoning with the injustices of systemic racism, that was, that was another, reading a lot of James Baldwin, I would say that was another sort of stream. So there's kind of multiple streams that are getting braided together in thinking through what this book is trying to grapple with. You call time a spiritual adventure. What do you mean by that? Yeah, th- there's uh, that, that great line from Gustavo Gutierrez where he says something like, to hope in Christ is to believe in the adventure of history. And I, I just think to see time as a spiritual adventure is to see that when God calls creation into existence, he creates this incubator that is history and time, right? Mm-hmm. So so mm-hmm. I would say this book is about my ongoing project to try to help us embrace creaturehood. And I think embracing our creaturehood, receiving our creaturehood as a gift is now leaning into and recognizing the kinds of temporal creatures that we are, that we are sort of we are shaped and live through history. We undergo time for the sake of living forward. And so, yeah, it's not, it's not just antiquarian interest in remembering. It's not just sort of looking back to leave it behind. It's, it's really trying to grapple with and reckon with who we are, who I am, because of what we have lived through, what I have lived through. And, and to also find in that reckoning 
the possibilities that have been handed down to me. So there's this prophetic element of reckoning with our past, but there's also this receptive element where now I'm trying to discern what are the unique sorts of possibilities that have been handed down to me by my history and my past and what I've undergone, which is now precisely what God is calling me to live into to answer God's call on my life now into the future. Yeah, and this is all connecting back for me to this word adventure, that someone who's going to go on an adventure, and in fact, well, I am such an Inklings nerd, but we're just going to go for it. So I'm going to bring in the Lord of the Rings once again. I'm thinking about the Fellowship of the Ring going out on this adventure. And when you have a character like, bless him, you know, Boromir, who is going on it with a particular mission in mind, he's going to accomplish this, he's going to do this. He's going to win this certain thing for his people. The adventure is, is about a heroic act, but it doesn't involve the kind of receiving and the humility and the listening and the accepting of what's given, the, you know, the, the counsel of the elves, the sort of inner compass of the heart, the circumstances that change and you can't control them. When there's a resistance to those things, the adventure goes awry. And you see that even, you know, Lord of the Rings is not the only example of an adventure going awry because of of this kind of wanting to control, even when you have a moment where it's like, aha, let's reckon. And then instead of responding with a receptivity and a humility, you're sort of just responding with a let's solve this or resolve this mindset. You miss out on something huge and maybe don't get to complete the adventure. And that connects me to, well, actually, let me, if, if you'd like to respond to that, let me. That's, uh, no, I think that that's fantastic. And it's exactly right that built into this notion of adventure is actually an openness to what's coming. So it's not just that you have the telos in mind of the project and the goal. It, what makes it an adventure is that you also have to even pursue that mission and goal with kind of an awareness of the contingencies that will be thrown your way. Mm. And I, I would say what's crucial. So I, I really, I, I try to lean into us not being scared of contingency, but I think it comes with a deep sense of God's withness throughout it. So, so I don't need to be destabilized and derailed if the missional plan I had in place is thrown curveballs because I still know what we're called to, but now God's with me in a way that is going to help me respond and and that there are even gifts in the curveballs. There are gifts in the zigs and the zags that I didn't know were going to interrupt us, so to speak, in in the the pursuing the goal. And I, I think that's really, really crucial. And, and it goes against a kind of management ethos that I think really characterizes late capitalism. Do you know what I mean? Like we, we yeah, want yeah, yeah. the formulas, <clears throat> we want the control, and we want the app that tells us how to fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this is the Christian secret, the open secret, right? That whereas we have a Lord it's not the app, you know, it's, it's, we have a Lord who, who is human, who became human and who, rather than being sort of dispersed as a mist or being less present now than he was before in his ascension is, is actually like more fully distributed into our reality than ever, (laughs) you know, you know, in a way that is so present that it's, that it's hidden and it's hard to discern in many ways, which makes Things like curveballs and zigs and zags and contingencies and vicissitudes. So, which is a word, I say it that way because he uses that word a lot in his book, and I love this word. It, <laughs> it makes these things so important. Absolutely. And and I, I think it's telling how much Christians are susceptible to being taken in by control narratives and control impulses rather than and trusting ourselves to the God who is in control and with us. I, 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 you know, the name of God that I think is most significant for this, 
this spiritual adventure of time is Emmanuel. And and to to adventure with the God who is with means that we sort of can more faithfully live out of control <laughs> uh, <laughs> because because we realize that <laughs> faithfulness is not the same of, as us having figured it all out in advance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd like to talk more about this in trusting ourselves. You talk about this problem that we have and that Christians really tend to have called dyschronometria. It doesn't mean that you're like, you know, you're taking too long getting dressed and you're always late for things. It just means you don't, you have trouble knowing what time it is, which can actually be really dangerous. Like someone with dyschronometria might forgot forget that they've taken their pills already. There was a time before Greenwich Mean Time was established, and that meant trains from different time zones would crash because people didn't agree on what time it was. And you say that a lot of Christians and Christian traditions suffer from dyschronometria. So what, what does that look like? And what yeah. does it mean when, when this is our, our state? And, and I think, you know, there are, there are different forms of, of it for Christian communities. And I think some have temptations that lean in other directions. So, so for example, I think, I think in, in American Christianity, particularly in American Protestantism, there's two curious facets of this dyschronometria, which is one, you actually think you are floating above history and surf history and stand from what I call a, a view from no when. Because now you think you have you have mm-hmm. access to the eternal God, and so therefore we think, well, we can see the whole as if we are not conditioned by time, as if we are not embedded in the flux of history. So I think that does funky things. And then you get this relationship to the future, which is this kind of end times fixation where what you are waiting for is the escape pod that's descending to get you out of time. And the only take you have on history is just utter decline. It's why it often goes along with a kind of primitivism or revivalism, which is always functionally says, well, yes, God's spirit was present and true in the first century. And then, you know, Ichabod, God leaves the building for millennia until some preacher discovers the secret again. It's just fundamentally un-Catholic conception of history and time. Mm -hmm. But I would say another kind of, of, disordered relationship to time that is very powerful is nostalgia. So I think the nostalgic impulse is very much alive and well. So it looks like it's very, you know, indebted to the past. It's grateful to the past. It's looking back to the past. So it's very historically conscious. In it a enjoys way. late 19th century wallpaper on its walls. Yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> Speaking of my <laughs> office here. So nostalgia looks like it's like faithful remembering. Mm-hmm. But the problem with nostalgia is not that it remembers. It's what it actively forgets. So that nostalgia is always an edited rendition of history. It's a kind of sentimentalized, romanticized mm. version of a mm. past. So mm. when you when you see a community and they're like they're all about this recovery, I just think we should always ask ourselves whose tradition, what time, who who was benefiting, and and I think that nostalgia is just I think it's really rampant in American culture right now. I think sort of. Like what I, example I do you see you, of that? Well, MAGA. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you were going to say something like the revival of the '90s in pop culture, but yeah, MAGA—that's well, a big somebody, one. So you know, I'm an old man, so I don't—I'm not up on everything the kids are doing these days. But I—I <laughs> I think the whole mantra of "Make America Great Again" is an utterly nostalgic romanticization of an edited version of our past. But I also think I think nostalgia's pretty alive in the church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yeah. think, I think there are, and, and notice, I, and as you know, I'm all for the grateful reception and resourcement of the present by recognizing and retrieving and receiving the gifts of the past. I just think there's a difference between that posture, receiving gratefully those gifts of the past for the sake of living faithfully now and into the future, versus thinking what faithfulness looks like is turning back the clock. I don't think turning back the clock is 
ever a version of being faithful. I think it's a version of repristinating an imagined past. I also think we are most likely to be romantic about a past we've never experienced. I honestly think this is, I'm veering way out of my lane here, but I think the, um, I'm going to catch you for this, but I think the romanticization of the Latin mass amongst 30 something young people is completely explainable by the fact that you can romanticize what you've never lived through. And so now what's actually being retrieved is a particular rendition of a past Mm -hmm. that is complicated, I think. Well, you could also see that as people recognizing a treasure of the past, recognizing a hunger for its benefits, and recapitulating it in a way that doesn't necessarily carry some of its baggage along with it. So that might be that may be a positive way. Let's say that nostalgia is the initial flawed state of things, but then there could be a movement, there could be a redemptive movement in that where someone says, where someone gives a more mature response, which is, you know what? Let me recognize the good in this and see how I can reappropriate it for my time, for my community in a way that makes sense for now without, as you said, trying to wrench back the hands of the clock in a way that's artificial or just ignoring, you know, the stories of people who lived through certain times and phenomena and will say, you know, actually wearing corsets wasn't that great, you know, like, like maybe, maybe that's not a fashion we should bring back or, you know, maybe the, you know, it was, it was really a beautiful thing when I could finally understand what the priest was saying and I didn't have to, you know, in my, in my own mother tongue. Yeah. I think that's the work of discernment. Yeah. I, I think that's why how we remember pivots on what we discern we are supposed to do with the past. And I think absolutely there can be versions of a retrieval that are about a recontextualization for a present and, and faithfulness. I, I'm just, I'm just, skeptical that there's a version of speaking a dead language for the sake of the now. But I know I absolutely, I I will not look at Twitter after this comes out because I'm just not interested in the at, in the mentions, but I'm not saying that remembering is the problem. It's what we choose to forget in nostalgia. That's the issue. And it's also something else is at stake. It strikes me, which is that you if you're indulging in nostalgia unchecked and unredeemed, then you're also setting yourself up for disappointment in anyone who doesn't agree with you, A, and B, in the times that you live in. So that if you're not careful, and I know this partly from experience, if you're not careful, you find more and more a disjunction between yourself and the actual context you're in and the actual relationships that you're in and create distance that doesn't need to be there. And then what can happen is that someone says to you or you say to yourself, well, prophets are always persecuted. So this yeah, distance yeah, yeah, is happening yeah. because I'm right, right. not right. because I'm yeah. I'm neglecting to really be attentive and receptive and discerning in, in the context that I'm in. To weave it back to what you were suggesting before, I think you could say that what goes on in nostalgia is actually a refusal of the adventure Hmm. because what, what we want to do is, and I get, I, I think it comes from a place of anxiety, which is also why it's very understandable. I think nostalgia looks for security and what it finds is security in, if we could go back to this, where we knew what it looked like and we, and, and I can sort of receive a template of what we're supposed to do, it sort of mitigates my having to deal with the curveballs and the things that are thrown my way on the adventure. I, I just want us to realize that there's a spiritual risk to that because mm-hmm. now what's happening is you kind of want to live in control again. Whereas the adventure with God in time is about learning to let go of that need and entrusting ourselves to the with God. That's beautiful. And going back to Lord of the Rings... <laughs> I think there are two examples of nostalgia there. One is 
the the less onerous, which is the elves that are fading. They decide to stay and to not engage in in the in the war that's before them, but they make the decision to simply preserve what's there, knowing, but they know that it's going to fade, and they know eventually they'll go off to the Grey Havens, and and who knows what they'll have to be accountable for. You know, in the end, did they do the right thing? Did they did they do the wrong thing? But there is a sadness that pervades their their kingdoms. And then you also have, I think, Jamie, I think Gollum has mm. a problem with nostalgia. Mm. Mm. He's really locked in the past and and is also a very sad creature. He's always trying to get the thing that will let him go back into the controlled environment. But of course, we see it's tell us a lot more clearly in Gollum. Yeah. That's that's really out. fascinating. You spend a lot of time with Lord of the Rings, don't you? <laughs> I read it every two years. <laughs> wow, that's great. <laughs> I read it every Fun. two years and started in the fall because it's just such a good, you know, adventure, yeah. you know, starts getting cold in the air, supposedly. <laughs> Hi, it's me again. I thought you might find this interesting. A donation of $250 to the Living Church pays for one whole week of podcast production. Yes, we are frugal here at the Living Church. We get a lot done on a little, but we still need your help. If you give between $50 and $250 to the Living Church before December 31st, tell you what, write to me at ambernoel at livingchurch.org, subject line podcast, and I will give you a special thank you for your donation between $50 and $250. And if you donate $250 or more, the cost of an episode, I will make you an episode sponsor. Hey, hey, write to me and tell me why you sponsored an episode and I'll read your email on air. We are grateful for you listening, giving if you can. Every budget counts. Even $5 is a blessing. The cost of that proverbial cup of hot chocolate. Bless you and help us to keep these conversations going. I'm interested in the way that this adventure in time means that we're subject to time, but also I think about this impulse to, you know, make a chart and say, what are, what are these times? Or to hold on, even if it's to something like a holiday season and say, you know, a Christmas gathering must be like this. This is how it happens in our family. And it must be like this. And so setting yourself up for disappointment. So you're, you, you're taking yourself out of time and looking at it and saying things should be like this, and I'm going to try my best to make sure that they stay like this. But that, even though that's a that's the wrong thing to do, it reflects, for me, a knowledge that we are creatures made in God's image. We're connected with the transcendent. We are spiritual creatures. We're connected with those who are outside of time and not subject to it. The Holy Trinity, possibly even the angels. It's not even a balance, Jamie, to strike. It's not a balance. I don't want to put it that way, like a mean that we have to strike. But how do we engage both? And that's our creatureliness. Like a cat is not looking at his watch unless he's in a Hayao Miyazaki movie, <laughs> in which case it's so delightful. <laughs> but so as creatures who are made in the image of God, who are in time, who are, have a particular perspective, a particular authority, this is how we operate. But this is also where we're limited and where God chooses to meet us. So we're, we ourselves are kind of a crossroads. No, this How do is, we deal I, with that? I, no, this is a great question. No, you're, you're highlighting something important. And, and I don't want to criticize that impulse to kind of like get a hold of our time. No, that in fact, that's the whole exercise of the book. That's you true. Know, I mean, you I, wrote, I yeah, you wrote this book. Kind of cultivating a temporal <laughs> awareness. And I do think that that's very, very unique to human creatures made in God's image that we have this capacity. I mean, in, in I, I engage Reinhold Niebuhr a little bit in the book, and he says, part of the challenge here for human beings is that we are creatures of history, like we are formed, but we are also agents of history, like we are making history. And in the same way, your your listeners won't care too much about Hegel, but Hegel would say exactly what you just said, which is, on the one hand, we are heirs of what has been handed down to us. We, we are shaped by our time. But because of spirit, we are exactly those creatures who can also get reflective and sort of like ask, what time is it? 
when are we? I, I absolutely think that is a imperative of discipleship <laughs> to mm. get to that place. And, and in fact, I would say as believers indwelt by the spirit, grateful recipients of God's revelation in Christ and the inheritors of the scriptures, we do have a way of, say, calibrating our clocks to a time that is always something other than the zeitgeist in which we find ourselves. And that, that's where I think maybe eschatology is actually the biggest piece of spiritual timekeeping that the church has to recover. I just think it's one of the saddest legacies of American Christianity over the last 150 years that the rapture kind of got to own eschatology. Mm. I think it's a it's a loss for discipleship. I think it's a loss for spiritual formation that we haven't articulated a more robust and daily eschatological orientation. I think Jürgen Moltmann is due for for new attention at a practical level from us, but I think it's really crucial work. And it needs to be engaged charitably because some of the absolute best Christian people that I know really believe in in the rapture very they hold to it as you know the hope that that this is what constitutes the end they didn't make it up you know so it's like I'm not throwing any shade on on people who hold to a theology of of the rapture as it was described and started being described in the 19th century but it's it's a shortcut. I just have this mental image of someone taking a wire and cutting it. And then, you know, you strip off the rubber on the outside and then you re, you know, you sort of Mm. hook it up at a different point. And that just seems to me to be what something like what rapture theology is doing and what makes the book of Revelation maybe helps to make it, it's already weird and scary, but makes it more weird and more scary Yes, exactly. It's, it makes the book of Revelation less of a pastoral resource and encouragement in our life of mission today by, by sort of projecting it all into a, a coming future. I, I, by the way, I think you're right that there has to be a, um, a sensitivity. I would say so much of my work over the past decade has been trying to invite fellow Christians to discover a Catholicity of the faith and therefore receiving the gifts of history and seeing ourselves part of the legacies of a church that preceded the 19th century, mm-hmm. <laughs> preceded the Reformation. So for, you know, if, if Augustine's City of God could be read just a little bit more and left behind novels read just a little bit less we, we we could discover i think new resources for pastoral imagination sure uh, by the way i read all the left behind books ravenously when i was a teenager until the final one came out which i think is called revelation and i picked it up in walmart when it first came out and i started flipping through it and uh i realized that the scene that i had flipped to was literally taking place in the throne room of heaven. But it was so banal. There was it was like, mm. oh, we're the same people, but now we're wearing white robes and we're like chatting with Jesus and there's yeah. a golden throne. And even I don't I guess I was 16 or 17 at the time and I just thought this is a fun novel to read on the beach, but this is a garbage piece of theology. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, this is because, so because yeah, because it's so small, not because it's yeah. too weird and scary and out of this world. And, but because, you know, Ezekiel's wheel within a wheel, but because it's too flat, there's a, exactly. there's a flatness to the imagination. Yeah. And that actually leads me to, to another question for you. Another thing we could talk about is how this reality of being temporal creatures, the more we live into it, the more things will open up for us. Sort of the greater the grace of God, the richer the understanding of the presence of God, of of Emmanuel, the deeper our humility, the deeper our ability to discern things that are really difficult to discern, the growing in wisdom. So it seems like really living in time involves 
a much deeper vulnerability than we thought, but also a more real agency than we often act like we have. So we actually have more power, but also a much deeper vulnerability, which seems to be the formula for human. I wonder, as you were writing this book, what really struck you or moved you as you were discovering sort of the depths of this vulnerability or the depths of this human agency, which both seem to be God's gift to us as creatures in time? Yeah. In some ways, Amber, this is a very middle-aged book. (laughs) In other words, I don't think I could have written this 10 years ago. I think one of the core insights that I'm just trying to testify to is this sense that I have to undergo things in time to get to a place to receive new gifts from God. And that a life lived is a very humbling experience (laughs) in in my experience. Yeah. Which is why like a short circuit doesn't make sense. A short circuit theology doesn't, doesn't really make sense for humans. Exactly. I think probably what I'm grappling with the most is just how humbling it is and how hard it is to be human sometimes. And yet the gifts that I have nonetheless found having undergone difficult things and discovering new ways of experiencing and knowing and understanding God that were pretty unimaginable for me as a younger person. But now I feel like I I understand something of God's gifts and grace and mercy that I couldn't have understood except having undergone these things in my own past history experience. I, I don't know yes. that, if that sounds so abstract, but it's, it's a, I, maybe it's, it's that combination of what you're, you're calling rightly the vulnerability of being human. And then I guess a kind of creeping appreciation for the mystery of God and not being freaked out by not having it all figured out because there's an, there's a different kind of understanding of God's presence and faithfulness that comes with the humbling. Is is there a story that you would feel comfortable sharing about this process for you? You know, the adventure of child rearing and marriage is, is you know, my, my wife and I have been married for 32 years. Oh, wow. Congrats. It has been the most significant. I know technically it's not a sacrament if I'm Protestant, but it's been, you know, such a significant means of grace. But the the thing that we have done together is raise children. And that is its own adventure. And and I think living through some of that, I have found myself with new capacities of compassion and humility and understanding and patience that I never ever could have had before. I think I feel closer to God because of that. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I can share a little bit of a personal a testimony, if you will. Last year at Advent, Advent 2021, right on the cusp of Christmas, when I'm all excited to get extroverted and go to church and go to parties, I have all my plans laid out. I come down with a horrible cold that may have been COVID. So all my plans were sunk and I was on my couch all through Christmas experiencing Christmas, but also experiencing my limits. It's hard to bring you into this moment, Jamie, but I I can say that during this season of time, the word vicissitude became one of my Mm. favorite words. The word contingency became one of my favorite words. And I started thinking about like my life over the past three or four or five years and saying, Life does not look like what I thought it would. Whys and wherefores don't have clean edges. In life, there's just a lot of incoherence and a lot of just helplessness, frankly. Is this normal? I guess it is. Why don't things happen in certain ways? And in this kind of a world, what does the providence of God mean? I mean, I thought I was special. I thought I was, you know, one of the lucky ones who sort of was blessed or favored. But what does the providence of God mean? when in the slings and arrows of, of outrageous fortune, even if it's just something as simple as, well, this is my last Christmas with my friends in Dallas because I was about to move and I can't Mm. see any of them. 
Mm. And I'm here, you know, stuck alone. And so the book resonated with me Mm. very deeply because these are things that have been tumbling around in the rock tumbler of my heart. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a word that you pull out of Martin Heidegger that puts this even just this whole picture very concisely. And that's the word thrownness, like a potter throwing clay on a wheel. And it made me think of Jeremiah invited to come to the potter's house, of course, Mm. Um, you know, does the clay say to the potter, why did you throw me like this? <laughs> like, right, right. Not, why did, not just why did you make me like this, but like, yeah. why did you put me in the 21st century in these circumstances? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have a pointed question to, no, to no, no, that up, but I just that. wanted I, to share that. Thanks for sharing that. And I can, part of, I think, sort of spiritually reckoning with the contingency of our experience of time is then realizing, oh, so you you lost something in that season. Do you know what I mean? And and in the and maybe in the big sweep of a life, that's going to turn out that that there was something else going on there. But because something is lost, you know, the absences are also things we carry. And I, I've known others who, for example, moved. You know across states in the middle of the pandemic and the oh, yeah. inability to say goodbye mm. oh gosh is not something that you can just get over way way too many forms of christianity posit a, a kind of theology of sanctification which is some version of get over it mm. and and i just think that's disastrous and 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 it's not you know caving to therapeutic culture or whatever to say that's not actually a, a, a biblical way of, of thinking about things and i think to 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 grapple with what we carry are also the the lacunae the gaps the the emptinesses and those can be micro and those can be macro and i i know i talk about in in the book about sort of learning to love what you'll lose because it is also kind of natural and for mortals to lose things because created things pass away. And I still really treasure when we moved 10 years ago from a house that we'd lived in for a decade, our first house we'd ever owned. Wow. And I got really, really anxious about that because of my own sort of habits and formation in the past. And Deanna, my wife, walked us all through this very intentional ritual where the family went to every room and sort of recalled gifts, you know, mm-hmm. recalled good things. And it helped me to realize that not all loss is tragic, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. And so there's ways to sort of lean mm-hmm. into, to receive that mortality, mm-hmm. to receive the ephemerality of our experiences and to sort of also keep holding those with open hands and lifting them up to God, knowing that that he's already present in the next house, so to speak. Do you know what yeah. I mean? The withness never mm-hmm. goes away. Yeah, yeah. And letting go, too, is this practice in death. It's a practice for dying. And, I mean, that's through the portals of death is where we will meet him face to face. And so the more graceful practice we can have in letting go. And by the way, each letting go is real. The thing that you're letting go, it's, it's, you know, we're um, with all respect to Buddhism, we aren't Buddhists. You and I are Christians. And so when something is let go, it's a real thing. It's an actual loss. It's not an illusion. When Jesus died, he was actually dead. And in that he was participating in some way in every loss, big and small, from moving, you know, moving houses to, you know, your your beloved pet dies or a spouse dies or whatever, you lose a job. And gosh, and the and the way that somehow, you know, if we believe that Christ's own death and participating in and bringing these deaths into himself. And then his rising again, his ascending to the right hand of the Father as our advocate, sending his Holy Spirit, being deeply present and immersed in all of our reality in an unprecedented way. 
I mean, frankly, unprecedented even for God because there was yeah. a time before he was incarnate. So this is yeah. this is also like yes. mind-blowingly, yes. you know, yes. which is I almost was like, should I say that? Is it blasphemous? No, it's true. No, it's, it's exactly just, right. You know, it's freaky. That if that's our model and if that's our reality, then all of these losses are also making us more like him in in his movement into the bosom of his father where he reigns, you know, which is yeah. The most vulnerable position, but also the the position of kingliness. This is why, I mean, the incarnation is so at the hinge of everything we're talking about and at the book, because what happens in the incarnation, of course, is that the God of the cosmos who calls creation into existence ex nihilo and thereby starts the clock ticking, then becomes the God who inhabits time in the sun and, and who is, you know, intensifies that withness. And you can see, I mean, Jesus weeps at loss. You know, there's 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 a, a Donald Hall poem. The, the poet Donald Hall was married to Jane Kenyon, who is also an amazing oh, poet. Oh, mm-hmm. There's a whole series of poems that he wrote after Kenyon's tragic death, too young mm-hmm. from from cancer, as I recall. And there's a there's a poem of his that I can just never get out of my head. It's called Her Garden. Because Jane was a was an avid gardener, and this is after her death, and and just the first couple of lines, if 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 you look it up, it's really amazing. But he says it's called her garden. He says, "I let her garden go, let it go, let it go," and it's like it, it it's really sort of saying, "I'm not going to live in any illusion here." I'm not going to pretend that Jane's still around tending the hydrangeas and the foxglove. I'm going to let the garden go and, and to, to see it spiraling and, you know, Mm. overgrown is, is actually a way of living into the loss. But then of course, to, to remember it in a poem is its own kind of, kind of keeping alive. It's a, it's a really marvelous poem. It's not lovely. So here's my final question for you. There's a place where I would have loved for you to have said more. When I got to your chapter, Seasons of the Heart, I found myself wanting more about these particular seasons. And maybe what I wanted wasn't part of your goal for this book, which is fine. Maybe that's a book for somebody else to write. But I I find myself hungry in this phase of my life to hear specifics about what different seasons of life entail to help me kind of be fruitful and satisfied where I am. I think the great gift for discerning such things is to cultivate friendships across generations. So I think multi-generational friendship is like a form of time travel almost. And so I also think, you know, seasons are quite highly contextual. So I'm not sure that I want to like impose a a timeline on anyone in particular because I do think we experience these things differently. I mean But Jimmy, I want a plan. My Franklin Covey planner needs to know what you know there are there are certain kinds of things, but again, they're not universal, right? So a lot of people will know if I talk about a season of child rearing, Mm -hmm. they'll be like, oh yeah, okay. I I know when I'm in that. I, I think it's more interesting to think through like I think it's not uncommon for say a season of ambition and aspiration in an earlier life right and then the, you know your 40s up to 50 is a season of acceptance working towards a certain kind of acceptance i mean i there god is always ahead of me so the future is always laden with possibility but i do have a particular story and i took this path and not that path and i took that road and not that road what do I do with that? I don't know yet what exactly that season looks like of sort of post-work, post-careerism, but I know that I need to be talking to people who are there so I can sort of recognize the dynamics of that. I, I just think communal conversation is maybe a more crucial gift than the map. But but if but if somebody has the map, let me know. Cause I, I do <laughs> think it would be helpful for people to not be surprised that they are in various seasons and they feel a little less alone alone as a mm. result. Yeah. There's probably a brilliant Catholic psychologist priest out there somewhere who has written that is probably exactly who has right. written this book. Yes. Or, or Brene Brown. 
Or there might be something <laughs> in scripture somewhere. I don't know, the yes, book of Ecclesiastes yes. or right, something right, like that. That's right. <laughs> well, this is this episode will air during Advent. And I wonder whether you have any plans already for Christmas. Have you looked that far ahead into your future? <laughs> no, except <laughs> excitedly receiving all of our children back to the nest, which is which is always a gift for us. But oh, Advent is, is such a great season to sort of live into so much of what this book is about because it's that dynamic of hoping and longing and expecting and waiting. And, and you feel the stretchedness of the soul and of the body of Christ mm-hmm. during that season in such a powerful way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe y'all, if you don't have your Christmas list full, you can put how to inhabit time on your Christmas list. There's a poem by Wendell Berry. It made me think of our time together today. It's very short. May I just read it briefly? Please. And this is from his A Timbered Choir, 1989. It's the chapter 1989. And it's... Poem number seven. The sky bright after summer-ending rain. I sat against an oak half up the climb. The sun was low, the woods was hushed in shadow. Now the long shimmer of the cricket's song had stopped. I looked up to the westward ridge and saw the ripe October light again, shining through leaves, still green, yet turning gold. Those glowing leaves made of the light a place that time and leaf would leave. The wind came cool, and then I knew that I was present in the long age of the passing world, in which I once was not, now am, and will not be. And in that time, beneath the changing tree, I rested in a keeping not my own. Beautiful. Isn't that lovely? Beautiful and very fitting. I've been talking today with James K.A. Smith, author of many books and well-known books, including How to Inhabit Time. Jamie, thanks so much for being with me. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. What is it like for the President of the United States to attend your church? Well, join us back here in two weeks as our interim executive director, Mark Michael, interviews Houston rector Russ Levinson about what he observed and learned by being priest to George and Barbara Bush. Until then, I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace.